He looked back at me just as plain as day, and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. It would be my privilege to defend the Nazi. It would be my privilege to defend Charles Manson. People are interested in crime. There's no getting around it, and Americans love violence. Coming to a brothel, you're having the full fantasy experience with somebody who knows, let's say, that there's five different ways to give a handjob plus. You know, talk to me about morality. Shut up. I tell you where you can stick your morality, man. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Unfiltered, the podcast. Uh, as always, this is the producer and director of the series, Brian Prouse-Ganey, and with me is my co-producer, Joy Zell. Today, we have a very interesting episode. Uh, this is someone that you booked, Joy Zell. Can you tell us a little bit about who we're talking to today? Yeah, so Tino Fuentes is our guy for today. He's a New York native, and he's a former drug addict and dealer, and he's also, surprisingly enough, a harm reduction consultant, and he's been that for the past 15 years. And for people that don't really know what that means, harm reduction consultant, how, how would you describe that? So really, it's, a, I guess, drug harm reduction consultant, mm-hmm. and he works to reduce the negative consequences associated with drug use. Like um, overdoses. Right, right. He uh, worked for St. Anne's, which is a church and also a harm reduction center in the South Bronx as a director of outreach. So he's basically been going out into communities that have drug users and kind of informing them, educating them. And just overall, the goal is to prevent, you know, as you said, fatal drug overdoses. So it's not exactly he's not really trying to prevent people from doing the drugs. He's just trying to make sure that they're doing them as safely as possible, especially in the middle of this opioid crisis that we're living in right now where there's so many frequent overdoses. Right. Exactly. And as somebody who used to use drugs himself, um, he understands that it's not as simple as just, you know, saying, oh, drugs are bad. You know, we just got to let these people know that he knows that it's kind of a harder road to recovery and that um, if he he doesn't want to necessarily cure drug addiction, but if he can save one life, um, that's good enough for him. Hmm. I am enabling, I'm enabling people to stay alive, not to use more drugs. Whether I'm here or not, you're going to use. The overdoses are quicker, they're stronger, they're, you know, it comes down like a f***ing brick. We're fighting a different beast now, right? Nobody deserves to die because they use drugs. Nobody. My name is Tino Fuentes, and I am a harm reduction consultant. I grew up in in East New York, Brooklyn. You know, we were poor. The people that were eating there, people that were living well, were selling drugs. The American dream, right? Yay! You know, I wanted to make money and have things. I have family members that use drugs, friends, people I grew up with. It's always been around me. I started selling drugs at a very young age, from weed to coke to quaaludes. Eventually, I got to heroin. That's where the money was at. So as you can hear, Tino is a true uh, old school New Yorker from East New York, Brooklyn, um, which actually, believe it or not, right now is like one of the last neighborhoods to kind of get gentrified. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's talking, I'm sure you don't remember this, uh, but nope. uh, but you're not even from the area. And, and I mean, you'd be too young anyway. But, right. And so. I, I believe it or not, even I'm a little too young to remember this. But as a New Yorker, uh, you know, as someone who grew up in New York, right, right. I love uh, listening to the tales of, you know, New York back in the day, which was a significantly different place uh, than it is now. And for better or for worse, I'm not saying one is better than the other, uh, but it was 
drug use was rampant. It was more out in the open. There were specific neighborhoods like the Lower East Side of Manhattan that even I remember running through as a kid, uh, like in the late 80s and early 90s. And you would frequently see people, you know, shooting up in the park. And this was just this really the way the city was back then. I mean, it was just, you know, so it's kind of, I. it's interesting to me when I talk to guys like Tino who, you know, you can hear it in their voice, like, you know, he's seen some shit and right. they've been around and they, you know, there's this sort of new romanticized version of what New York is today. But we're also going to hear that, you know, some of the problems that many people think was swept under the rug are still here. They're just here. They just look differently. New York City in the 80s, yeah, there were lots of drugs. If you bought coke, you were buying coke. If you bought heroin, you were buying heroin. Whatever you bought, that's what you were buying. And of course, you know, once in a while you would run into something that was not what it was. Back in sometime in the 90s, there was this drug called Tango and Cash. And I think one of the kickers were like 13 or 30 people, whatever, had overdose over the weekend and nothing was being said. Nobody gave a fuck. Tango and Cash was killing people everywhere. It was later found out that Tango and Cash, they were putting fentanyl into it. So fentanyl, for those who don't know, um, it's been going around the country and a lot of drugs have uh, been laced with it. And it's a powerful type of opioid that's used uh, mainly for pain medication. And it's 100 times more powerful than morphine. And in 2016, there were about 64,000 drug overdose deaths in the country. And more than 20,000 of those were related to fentanyl. Yeah, I mean, this thing is awful. I mean, basically, this is... Killing people left and right, you know, um, anyone that knows anyone that has any type of addiction issues in their family or whatever, they've probably heard something about fentanyl in the past couple of years. Um, and it's really uh, terrorizing people within the drug community. Yeah, during during the interview, Tino was, you know, actually in many ways kind of was illustrating to us like how strong uh, fentanyl is compared to other substances like morphine. Um, but anyone that's been reading the news lately should know that like this thing is so toxic. Um, it's I, deadly, extremely deadly. Th- there was an incident where um, a five-year-old child had to be hospitalized or, or someone around that age because he was literally in a swimming pool and he grabbed a, a towel to dry himself off. And I guess somehow that towel had been in contact with like a little bit of fentanyl. And just from a little bit of contact on that towel, that towel being used to dry the kid off. uh, I never heard that one. Put toxicity into his blood and and get rushed to the hospital. Yeah, it was awful. So he rubbed the towel on his face and that was... That was what caused the overdose? Yeah, I'm actually looking at it right now. And it was, uh, he was a 10-year-old boy uh, in Miami. And he he actually died from the contact with the drug. Um, it was awful. Yeah, apparently, whatever, the towel had somehow gotten into contact with fentanyl. There was little trace amount of fentanyl on the towel. The little boy just used it to dry himself off. Uh, I guess, according to the toxicology report, there was just two to three milligrams of fentanyl, which they're basically equating to five to seven grains of table salt, just that to really give you the little. picture of how tiny an amount. Picture that five to seven grains of table salt of this, you know, hor- horrific substance was enough to kill a 10 year old boy. That's just, it. Just an overdose. Just by touching it on his skin. Oh, my yeah. God. And uh, so the idea that people are, you know, either snorting this or shooting this intravenously uh, is pretty terrifying. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrifying. The fentanyl threat and the broader opioid epidemic are the number one drug threats facing our country. More and more people are dying from fentanyl. Killing people at a rate more than four times as high as fatal car crashes. I think in New York City, every seven hours somebody dies of overdose. I got tired of, you know, people dying 
you might, there might be something there that could prevent at least some of these deaths. I talked to a couple of health officials, doctors, etc., and I started going out myself. You know, I like I know the I know the neighborhoods, I know the areas. You know, I know the people that are using. I started going out myself and trying to talk to people and like you know introduce this fucking piss strip. So it's funny when he calls them a, a piss strip, but what's what's he talking about exactly? So what he really means um, is he has these pH strips that were originally used for urine testing for the purpose of detecting fentanyl in illegal drugs. So right. he's talking about like the physical paper strips that you would use. For- so this is what normally you would pee on. Exactly. But now um, he's had the idea to basically test the actual drug itself. Right. To find the fentanyl in it. Exactly. Um, which is kind of funny, too, because like I, we never really had a chance to talk to him about sort of the origination. I don't even know if he knows this, but like how, why these strips were created uh, originally. Right. Because it almost seems like. It's it's a it it's almost seems like it's trying to figure out if like you take drugs or not, right? Yeah. Like like so it almost has like this different meaning behind it. Yeah, but he's found and a way to like flip it. Flip the on script its head. on it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And basically because of his background and because of his education, both being an addict and a dealer, you know, he knows the places, he knows the spots. He knows where to go to find people that are using uh, Exactly. probably better than the average social worker or right, someone government else or, official. Yeah. Totally. So he's really trying to use these uh, pH strips to save lives. And then I dip it into the residue. We're going to test it for, for fentanyl. It says five minutes. Within a minute or less, it'll tell you. This one is positive, one line. One red line is positive. If you have two lines, it's negative. Look, this is nothing. This is a strip, a piece of paper. It's a way for me to be able to talk to you. There's fentanyl in it. These are the things that you can do. During the beginning, I would tell people, um, okay, I'll tell you what. If it tests negative for fentanyl, I'll give you the $10. I mean, you're going to keep your bag any f***ing way, but I'll give you the $10 and buy yourself another bag, whatever you want. If it's positive, we'll sit down and have a conversation. Not once did I ever have to pay that $10, because every time I tested it, it was positive. Treatment programs, I don't know. What works for you might not work for me, might not work for, you know. We have to treat people individually, and also the person that use drugs, they should have a voice at the table because they'll know better what, what does help and what doesn't help. So he has a good point there, that treatment programs work for some people, but they just don't for others. No, it's true. I mean, you know, it's we're in a shitty situation right now where so many people are dying from overdoses that we really have to look at the almost the lesser of two evils. Um, you know, basically, sure, a lot of people get on their high horse and, and like to preach, you know, about, oh, you know, Nobody forced these people to do these drugs, these people. But, you know, I think that's BS personally. I've been around addicts. I know addicts very well. Um, I think there's different variations of them, like he says. I think different types of people react differently to different types of treatment. Uh, At the end of the day, I do believe opioid addiction and heroin addiction are diseases and should be classified as such. Um, And when you do that, if you were talking to someone else about you know, cancer treatment or HIV treatment or something, you would invite them to the conversation. Exactly. Um, so I think it is important that we become a little more cerebral in trying to tackle this problem. And I feel like that's something that he's doing. You know, maybe it's a little outside of the box, um, but it's helping people. I mean, and it's just like he said, I mean, who cares? Even if it saves just a handful of lives, um, you know, I think it's, and he saved much more than that. Right, he did, yeah. So he's reversed over 100 overdoses, um, according to him, and he's also trained thousands of people on how to do that. So, I mean, you know, he's 
saved over 100 but you know there's so many possible countless lives that he's also helping yeah because he's kind of getting there ahead of the game exactly I mean, basically he's like hey before you do something stupid this is what prevention is, is the name of the game for exactly him. yeah and he believes so much in that um especially with the ph strips that he eventually ended up leaving saint anne's resigning as director of outreach because this work that he was doing since he was directly working with users and drugs could have landed him in jail for possession and that would have gotten St. Anne's into legal trouble. Yeah, I found that that was interesting. Like it's sort of the way that this needed to be tackled uh, couldn't be limited by, you know, what's available from, you know, a state or government or whatever type of agency. Right. Like it's he's almost like this urban warrior that's just hitting the streets on his own doing this thing. And he said even on his GoFundMe that this is now coming out of his own pocket and he needs help because he's given up his main source of income. Wow. Certain officials were like, you know, you're wasting your time, you're wasting money, we're not going to do this. We as a country don't give a fuck, especially the government, because there are options, there are things that we can do, and we don't. The newest country, the most progressive country, we're a third world fucking country when it comes to drug use and drugs. All right, so right now it's actually a very interesting time to be talking about this. Um, Recently, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, he's been sort of very outspoken about a campaign against the opioid epidemic. He's gotten tens of millions of dollars, I think almost 60 million in total, uh, to invest in this battle. One of the things that is being discussed and debated right now, uh, especially on social media, uh, between you know left people and right people, is that he wants to institute safe injection sites. Uh, I think he's looking at particularly in, in doing three or four within Manhattan. And basically, these are places where addicts can go, uh, where they can shoot safely uh, with clean syringes, and that uh, people are on hand, medical officials, that you know can help them if they overdose. And there's also social workers that are going to be there as well that are obviously going to try to talk them into you know going into rehabilitation programs and trying to get off of these things. A lot of people don't like this idea. It kind of it makes me angry because. You know, we have an epidemic on our hands here, right? And it requires outside-of-the-box thinking. Right. At the end of the day, this is an issue that's going to keep happening. So to- it's either you totally. either let it happen unsupervised or you try to take steps. And Exactly. You know. I mean, that's it. I mean, the, the thing is, is that we are not helping people uh, survive and we're not helping people. We're not helping people through overdoses and we're not helping people kick drugs altogether, right? So uh, a lot of the people that want to condemn these programs don't have any other thoughts or ideas to put up with them. Manhattan is a very different place than it used to be. You used to be able to put places like this anywhere you want. Uh, you know, but now we have a lot of luxury living within the city. We yeah. have a lot of high-end retail everywhere. And, and pretty much I'm sure the last thing anybody wants is to have one of these safe injection sites next to their... Right. It's a it's a tough line. It's like, where do you... Like what Tino said at the beginning um, of the episode is like, people accuse him, you know, going back to what he's doing, of enabling right. people to use drug use. And, you know, some... People who would be against Bill de Blasio's new plan would say the same thing. Exactly. That this is enabling. Like, where do you draw the line between, you know, where do you draw enabling. the line when it comes to enabling and criminalizing yeah, this totally. kind of stuff? 
Uh, but, but this, you know, this argument is not that different than the old arguments. Nobody wants to live next to a methadone clinic. You know, nobody wants to live next to um, drug rehabilitation facilities. You know, that's true. Nobody wants it in their neighborhood. And I'm sorry. I mean, this is New York City. I mean, if we can't put it here, then where can we put it? You know, I, I know the city's changed over the years, but I mean, that's what's sort of that's sort of what is kind of interesting about this conversation is we, we talk about how we've cleaned the city up, but the city's not ready to clean up its own. And I just. Very true. I just find that strange. But that being said, even though Bill de Blasio has this plan uh, to institute these things, which very well may not happen because uh, he's going to need the sign off uh, from Governor New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo. And uh, if you look at their you know previous relationship, it's not a very good one. Nope. Uh, so I don't th- I don't I don't see. Yeah, we'll go- see where it goes. <laughs> I don't see Governor Cuomo signing off on this. Uh, but what's interesting is that even though he's trying to do this sort of outside of the box plan, he's also doing a very sort of old school plan that uh, more conservative people, I'm sure, like. And that's the majority, or at least half of the funding that he received was given to the NYPD as part of the strategy uh, to take down this opioid epidemic. The, the Blasio, the city of New York, whatever, got millions to, to, to fight this opioid crisis. And he gave half of it to the NYPD. Half. We're the biggest police force in the country, and we're bigger than some countries' small army. But we're also the most abusive racist, everything else you can add to it, police force. So they can armor up and go into communities of color and do, do more destruction and damage. White people have always used more drugs than people of color. They're realizing that now because the highest rate of overdose are white people. That we always had like the war on drugs and now, you know, you know they're shifting over to a, like a gentler touch, you know, a softer touch, right? That's off the touch is still not for my community. It's always been there. We have always been dying and nobody gave a f-. It never left. It just, the tone of the, the skin tone of the person that's using it um, is what changed. If you want to try to do something about or keep people alive, you know, make it work for everybody, not just a particular people. You know, the next person that dies could be your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. You know, like everybody's affected. Everybody that I talk to, either them their family member, a friend, a friend of a friend, a family member, like everybody's, everybody's affected. And every time there's some opioid summit or whatever it is that they want to call it, it has to do about pills or we're suing the pharmaceutical companies or whatever, you know, all that. We're past that, you know, find a way to keep people alive. He brings up a good point that giving money to the cops may not be the brightest idea, considering that the epidemic that's going on in New York, well, that he's talking about, he's talking about communities of color, right. the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, have, even in uh, Newark. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, like outside New Jersey and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's never been... Uh, the relationship with cops has been always a little testy. Always been a little... Yeah, exactly. And when you're talking about this amount... Because, I mean, honestly, when you're giving money to law enforcement, it's it's just not... It's money for incarceration. It's for arrest. It's not it's for not treatment. For, it's it, not for prevention. Right. It's for criminalizing it, to a certain, you know... It is. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. Um, you know, and... I mean, and sure, you know, there's the age-old discussion that they're there to take down the dealers, not the users. Um, I mean, that's a whole other conversation of why people are dealers right. uh, specifically in communities of color but you know and of course he made he makes the point too that 
you know, part of the reason we're hearing so much about the opioid crisis and everything is because of all of the the white kids that are dying from this right now. Yeah, uh, why and, we're hearing about it now and the fact that he says it it really never left. Right. It never left his communities. No. It was always there in his communities of color. And and it's funny, he says the, you know, he makes the point that, you know, white people have always kind of, you know, tended to use more drugs and do these things. And, you know, we have some of that data. And it's true. And it, and it is true, especially right now. Um, but it, it, uh, it, you know, it's sad that what you're seeing now is is a different face of an overdose. You know, you're seeing the prom queen overdose. You're seeing the, the football captain overdose. You know? Right. Uh, you're seeing this in the suburbs. You're seeing it in these areas that you wouldn't expect to see it. But... You know, people always have this like stigma and this thing that they, you know, picture what a drug addict is and what a drug addict looks like. And I think I like the fact that Tino is trying to sort of um, deprogram you from that type of thinking. Right. He's Be- calling it out. He's Be- calling out what the media has been doing. Totally. That it's not occurring. That now that it's occurring in like middle class, what many would consider safe right. neighborhoods, right. Um, that now it's something that's getting national attention from Trump, right. uh, you know, from the White House administration. Whereas because it's been occurring for decades in communities and poor communities of color that are full of crime, like everybody pretends that's not Absolutely. an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. So for our exclusive clip, uh, Tino said some interesting stuff uh, involving cross-contamination, uh, you know, and the fact that fentanyl obviously isn't isolated to heroin alone. Uh, they're finding it in cocaine. They're finding it in places like Xanax. Um, he has some insight to share as a former dealer himself. When I say you buy 500 grams or 250 grams, you know, a, a key or half a key of cocaine, and you're hearing all about fentanyl, and you hear, and you see in the newspaper, oh, shit, it's, it's being put in cocaine. But then you get an ounce of coke, and you try to cut it up and mix it up, and you're obviously going to do it wrong. You're not going to take the time and all that bullshit, and you're going to throw it out there. So you're going to get, like, this chocolate chip effect, right? Like, you have super saturated fentanyl, nothing here, slightly laced, you know. I tested 10,000 bags, already bagged up, stamped and everything. 10,000, I just grabbed random bags. And I got both positive and negative because the cutting process is so unreal. Um, it, you're never going to get it exact, but if you spend the time and do it right, you're going to get consistency. And so you might have one or two people dying nowhere near as close to, you know, 64,000, right? I mean, I've been out of the game for a long time, but it'd be nice if I can go to Mexico and hook up with some cartel or whatever and tell them straight a little, I know you're going to use it. I don't give a fuck. Do your thing. But let me teach you how to cut this shit, you know, so at least we can save some lives because I'm not going to stop anybody. I'm, no matter what I tell you, that's a lot of money. 250000 or $1.7 million. People kill for that shit. I love his analogy to making chocolate chip cookies, which had to be explained to me uh, by my editor, Eileen, earlier. Um, and do you know what he means by that? So basically, it's like when you're making chocolate chip cookies and you dump all the chocolate chips mm. in the dough. You know, some cookies are going to... But wherever you take a bite, okay, there'll be like maybe two chocolate chips in that one bite. But then another bite, there won't be any chocolate chips at all. It's right. not really evenly... Proportions. ...placed. Right, exactly. Um, so he's saying that like, you know, one batch could have a lot of fentanyl and another batch could have like very little or just none at all. Right. We're not talking about people that are, they're on all different levels of manufacturing and cooking and making this stuff, right? So you can't, 
really trust everyone's cleaning out this thing before bringing in another ingredient in it. Who knows what right. trace There's no regulations going, in this industry. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's there, yeah. there really isn't. Um, so you have no clue as to what you're getting. One of the things, though, that I think was really interesting that he said there was about wanting to team up with the cartels. And, you know, and he talked to us a little bit about that off camera. And... Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, that, you know, that he'd be willing to go down to Mexico, you know, and put himself, you know, in very dangerous situations just to make sure that the illegal drugs are being prepared in a way where it's not murdering uh, its clientele. Yeah, that's how you know he's very serious about this issue. Well, thanks again for joining us this week on Unfiltered. Uh, Next week, we have a very interesting episode where we will be talking about the threats and the potential dangers of weaponizing artificial intelligence. Ooh, exciting. Yeah, this is a different one. We're uh, we're Robots taking over the world. Robots taking over. Uh, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking have have given us some warnings about it. uh, It's too late now. We're going to see the reality. We're talking to a professor uh, who works uh, in educating people. He recently just spoken uh, at the UN about um, the dangers of uh, weaponized and automated artificial intelligence. And so that will be next week. But thanks again for joining us on Unfiltered. Make sure you go to Unfiltered on Yahoo News to see the video that accompanied this interview. And we'll have new episodes up every week and new podcast episodes up every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.